Well, today I've entitled the message, What is God's Plan for Your Money? Or perhaps another title would be, How to Be Financially Blessed. Maybe you like that one better, but they're really one and the same. The Bible has a lot to say about money. I haven't counted, but other people have, and they say there are 2,350 verses in the Bible about money and possessions, how we are to uh, treat or handle our money and possessions. And yet many people, despite all this teaching in God's Word, many people, including believers, oftentimes don't understand the biblical principles concerning money. And the reason is that many of our ideas about money come from the world around us, not from God's Word. Now, our title, What is God's Plan for Your Money, actually has a problem, even though I invented that title. It has a problem. Most people think of the money in their bank account as their money. It's my money. It's in my bank account. Uh, I've earned it, and so I can do with it as I please. But that's not what the Bible says about our money. 1 Chronicles 29, verse 11 says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and give strength to all. And so this verse, as well as many others in God's Word, tells us that everything on this earth, it says, uh, all that is in the heavens and in the earth. What is excluded from the word all? Nothing. All that is in the heavens and earth is God's, including the money in our bank accounts. God owns it. And any riches that we manage to have or to accumulate, any resources, where did it come from? It's a gift from God. God has given it to us. Everything that we have is from His hand. And so we are to be, as we'll see today, managers or stewards of what God has entrusted to us. What we have been given. And so perhaps a more accurate title, although I think it's too long, that's why I didn't use it, is what is God's plan for His money in my bank account? What is God's plan for his money in my bank account? So let's look at a key principle of God's word for his money in our bank accounts. Malachi 3 verse 10 says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there might be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until... There is no more need. And so this is a, both a command and a promise concerning our handling of God's finances. God tells us to regularly give the first 10%, which is the tithe of our finances, to his house. In the Old Testament, his house was the temple. In the New Testament, his house is the church. And so we give to God through his house. When you're faithful... To give your tithes to God, 
What is the promise? It says that he's going to pour out on you a blessing until there is no more need. In other words, he's going to bless you so that you will have no need in your life. In fact, this verse has an interesting phrase. These, verse 10, he says, put me to the test. A lot of people think they do the simple arithmetic. If I give to God, I'm going to have less for myself. God says, that's not true. I'm going to bless you if you give to me. He says, put me to the test. Try it and see if it works. You're going to be better off by obeying my word uh, than if you don't obey my word. Now, what if we choose not to obey the command? Actually, the preceding verse tells us what's going to happen. Verse 9. He says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, speaking to the nation of Israel at the time and to us today. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. In other words, when we don't give our tithes to God, God says we are stealing from God that which he has told us to give directly to him through his house. And rather than receiving the promised blessing in our lives, it puts us under a curse. That's the opposite of, of blessing. And that's why... Believers who don't regularly tithe are often in perpetual financial difficulty. Now, tithing's purpose is first and foremost to bring blessing into your life, into your finances. God promises to meet your needs as you do that. Jesus commended tithing in the New Testament. And he also gave us the promise in Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In this verse, all these things is the needs that we have in our lives. He says he's going to meet all of our needs as we seek his kingdom first. And as we seek his kingdom first with our finances, that's exactly the same promise that God has given to us in Malachi 3, verse 10. Now, what of the other 90%? If we are to give God... 10%, the first 10% of our income, what about the other 90%? Is it ours to do with as we please? Well, we already know that's not the correct answer. Absolutely not. Because everything that we have is God's. We are simply a manager of it. What do we do with the other 90%? We use it according to God's plan and purpose for our lives. We use it to extend His kingdom. We use it to meet the needs of our families. We use it to bless others. We use it to support missions around the world. We follow his direction with all of our finances. So Jesus is going to talk about money today as we go through our scripture in Luke chapter 16. And the first principle he's going to teach us about managing the money that he has entrusted to us is we are to use it, use the money to win the lost. Our story begins in Luke chapter 16, verse 1. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called to him, 
and said to him, what is it that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So in Jesus' parables and Jesus' stories, the different characters in the story correspond to different things. Uh, it's not just a story. Really, the, in this story, the, the master, the rich man, corresponds to God the Father. And the manager corresponds kind of, as we'll see, kind of to us as believers. There's an aspect of it that corresponds to us. There's another aspect that should not correspond to us. So the story's a little bit complicated, but we will sort it out. And so this manager gets in trouble. He gets in trouble for not being a good manager. And so his boss, the rich man, found out that he was not taking good care of the things that had been entrusted to him. He was mismanaging it. Whether he was actually stealing it or just wasting it, uh, we're not exactly sure, but it was not good. And the master decided to fire the manager. So what's the manager going to do? Verse 3, And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. And so the manager made a plan for his future. He was going to lose his job and have no more income. He decided he didn't want to do manual labor, that I'm too weak to do that. And um, he didn't want to beg. And apparently he had no other options. So he said, I'm going to have a plan. I'm going to have a plan and it has to do with other people, so other people can help me out after I am laid off. So what did he do? Verse 5, And summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill, and write 80. What's going on here? The manager was in charge of people who paid the master to, uh, for the use of his land. The master owned lots of land, and the people basically rented the land and paid a certain amount of wheat or oil in order to use the land to grow their crops and feed their families and make a living. So the manager decided to reduce the rent for each debtor for the use of his land. And so in the first one, uh, he reduced the rent by 50%. From the price that the master was charging these debtors with, he reduced it. The second one, he gave him a 20% discount. Most likely, the manager did this with more debtors. We're just given two examples to win their favor. Now the master, it says in verse 8, commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now here's the conclusion. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So that when it fails, they, the friends, may receive you into eternal dwellings. 
So let's unpack this. So the, the manager was dishonest, okay? We don't want to emulate or follow his example. He was cheating his master, basically, giving discounts he was not uh, qualified to do. He was dishonest in his behavior that led to his firing before he began to offer these discounts and for the discounts he offered without the manager's approval. And so in this story, the manager, I mean the master, is commending this, this manager not for his dishonesty, but for his shrewdness. Now that's not a word we normally use. I would say wisdom, uh, his wisdom that he was acting in. What was he shrewd about? What was he wise about? He was looking to the future. He understood that his circumstances in the future were going to be different than they were right now when he had the job. And he was doing something to plan for the future. And what was he doing? He was looking to use basically money that had been entrusted to him to win friends, to make relationships with people who would help him in this future state. And Jesus then tells us that oftentimes unbelievers are wiser. He says, sons of this world, unbelievers, are wiser in dealing with people than believers. We need to learn, we can learn things from unbelievers actually. Jesus is saying here, learn something from this dishonest unbeliever that you can apply to your life. And this last verse then is the takeaway from Jesus for the whole story. What does he mean? In this life, we are to make friends for ourselves with the money referred to as unrighteous wealth. The money that God has given to us to manage. We are to make friends. Who are these friends? These friends are people that we lead to the Lord to become believers. How do we know that? Well, it says when it fails, when the money fails, when does our money fail to do us any value? When, we're, when we pass on, right? Our money means absolutely nothing to us in the next life. And in this life, he's talking about heaven when our money fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. That's talking about heaven. It's not talking about hell. It's talking about heaven. And who's going to be there in heaven? Let's not worry about who gets there first. Please. But the friends are going to be there, right? And they're going to welcome you into heaven because why? Because you were the one that helped get them there. They're going to be eternally grateful to you. Those friends will welcome us into heaven. And so Jesus is telling us that the most important use of the money he's given to us to manage is to use it to help lead people to faith in Jesus Christ. I think it also relates to the Bible teaches us to lay up treasure in heaven. You ever figured out, like, how do I do that? You know, it's like, how can I transfer, you know, money from my bank account to my heaven's account? It's like, I don't, I don't know. It's not, I haven't figured that out yet. Well, you can't do it directly. Nothing from this earth can we transfer to heaven except what is the only thing that actually goes from earth to heaven? People, saved people. Saved people are the only ones that are going to go to heaven. And so, if 
by leading people to the Lord, we are in essence, it's one way at least of laying up treasure in heaven. And I would argue the most important way to lay up treasure in heaven. And so God has, God wants us to use the riches, the resources that he's given to us to win the lost, both through our own lives, our own efforts, through giving to other people such as missions. And those believers are the treasure that we're going to see in heaven that welcome us into the eternal dwellings. So the dishonest manager used the master's money to make friends prepare for the future. We should be honest managers of God's money who use what God has entrusted to us to see people saved who will be with us forever and eternity. And of course, that's everybody. That's people in our families. That's our relatives, our children, our grandchildren, uh, our parents, our grandparents, our extended family, our workmates. It's everybody uh, that's in our circle of influence using the money that God has entrusted to us to win the lost. The second principle Jesus is going to talk about is using money, our money, to serve God. These are all related, but a little bit different. Verse 10, one who is faithful in very little, still Jesus' teaching, is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. So Jesus is telling us a very important, showing us a very important principle in using the money that God has entrusted to us. If we're faithful when we don't have much in the way of resources, in the way of finances, if we give our tithes and offerings when we don't have much, then what? God will be able to entrust us with more. That may have to do with money. It may have to do with other riches, as we'll see as we go on. But if we are not faithful when we have a little... We're not going to be faithful if we have much. That's what Jesus is saying. Verse 11, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? So if our money is unrighteous wealth, what are the true riches? I believe the true riches are spiritual riches. They are spiritual blessings. They're spiritual power, spiritual impact. And when we're faithful with the money that God has entrusted to us, God will be able to trust us with other blessings in our lives. In fact, God will often be able to entrust us with more money. Why? Because we won't use it for our own selfish interests. We will use it to expand in His, his kingdom. Verse 13, Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus concludes the, um, this section by talking about two masters, God and money. Money can be our master. Money can be our idol. It is for many people. People, in essence, worship money. They put, money becomes their security, right? The more money I have in my bank account, I'm okay. It's going to take care of me. I don't have to worry about, I got a lot of money in my bank account. A lot of money invested in the stock market. 
Might not be so much right now. Uh, <clears throat> people trust in their money. And have you ever noticed that people's desire for money is never fulfilled? They always want more. If I only had this much money, I'd be fine. Well, you get that much money, and what happens? Well, if I only had some more money. Because, you know, it's a lot of trouble. It's a lot expensive to take care of the money I have. So I'm going to need more to take care of the money I have. And it, people are never satisfied. They always want more and more. People who worship or serve money as their master. We must worship and serve God alone. And he will direct and guide us in how we are to use the finances he has made us managers over. I was fortunate that my parents taught me to tithe at a very young age. <clears throat> of course, you can tell this was a long time ago. I got my allowance. You know, my first allowance was a dime. Like now we don't pick dimes up the ground, do we? Because they're not worth anything. <laughs> and so I got a dime and, you know, I would get it in pennies. So I'd have 10 pennies that looked like more that way. And uh, I would take one of those, at least one, sometimes two, and, and give it church on Sunday. That was my tithe. When I got a little older, I began to uh, have a paper route, and I would go around on my bicycle and uh, deliver newspapers. You know, they used to do that a long time ago. I'd throw them and put them in doors. And this, when I got $10 for delivering my papers, I would take at least a dollar and, and give it Sunday in church. When you learn to be faithful with a little... And you create a good habit in your life. It's easy to keep on doing that. And when I've earned more in my life. Not that I'm rich by any means. You keep giving your tithe. You keep giving your offerings. And God continues to bless. Oftentimes the thoughts that people have is. You know. I really don't have enough to give to God. I don't have enough to tithe. You know, I have this calculator and a budget program. And I have my budget figured out. And once I pay all my bills, there's nothing left. And so I, I just can't afford to tithe. And if God would just bless me and give me some more money, then, then I would begin tithing because then I would be able to afford it. Well, what does God say? If you're not faithful in a little, you're not going to be faithful with a lot. It's not going to work out that way. But if you begin to be faithful with a little, God will give you more. You're going to be blessed. You'll actually have more than if you hadn't tithed. If you've never done it before, God says, try it. Test me. Let's see if it works. If you don't have the faith for 10%, this is not in the Bible. I'm just making this up. But try 5%, okay? Try something to give to God and see if he doesn't bless. I'm not quite sure the promise holds for 5%. But uh, it's a start. It's a start, okay? And uh, that you would be doing better than a lot of people if you began with that start as well. God promises to meet every need you have and give you even more true riches as you use what he has entrusted to you to serve God. Finally, we are to love God, not money. 
course, all these things are interrelated. Verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And so all of this teaching of Jesus was directed to the Pharisees and to us today, to everyone who reads. The Pharisees were the Jewish leaders. And Jesus said, or yeah, Jesus said they were lovers of money. They, they loved money. Money is an idol that many people love rather than God. If you love money, you're not going to love God. You can't love money and love God at the same time. As you cannot serve God in money, so you cannot love God in money. Those who love money, they exalt it in their own lives and in the lives of other people. People who love money, who do they look up to? Who are their models? Who are their examples in life? Rich people. People who are millionaires. People who are billionaires. You know, if I could just follow their example and be rich like them. That's how people who love money think. God does not give his stamp of approval on those who are rich in this world for their riches. God knows, what does it say? He looks at people's hearts, not at their bank accounts when he evaluates their character. Money is simply a tool that can be used for good or it can be used for evil. And so the amount of money that a person has is is no reflection on their spiritual state or value. The Pharisees believed that wealth was a blessing from God for following the law. In other words, they believed the more money that they had, the more righteous they were. But he says, that's not true. Because you are lovers of money rather than lovers of God. Their view of money, Jesus is saying, was an abomination in the sight of God. Much of the Pharisees' interpretation of the Bible, the Old Testament of their time, was in error. So Jesus continues in verse 16. He says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And so Jesus wanted to make clear that all of God's word was still God's word in his day and is still God's word today. All of the Old Testament still speaks to us today when we properly interpret it in light of the New Testament. The good news of the kingdom, the gospel, began with the ministry of Jesus, and yet the law of the prophets, the law and the prophets, which is what Jesus called the Old Testament, was not outdated. It still speaks to us today. Jesus then moves on to another misinterpretation of the Old Testament by the Jewish leaders and by many people today. He says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So the Jewish leaders of Jesus' time taught that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. The wife could not divorce her husband. That's how they interpreted things. They also taught that once divorced, both man and woman could remarry. 
And so divorce was very common in Jesus' day as it is today. And so Jesus here and in the other Gospels gives the proper interpretation of God's word on divorce. So I asked myself, why would Jesus bring this up here? He's talking about money. What does that have to do with divorce? Well, when you look up what is the most common cause for divorce today, you know what the answer is? Money. Money. Disputes and arguments over money is the most common cause of divorce today. And my guess is that it was the most common cause. People are the same today as they've been in the past. The most common cause in Jesus' day as well. From the rest of Jesus' teaching, the only biblical grounds for divorce is adultery. And even if there is adultery, if possible, reconciliation is the best way forward. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying if a man divorces his wife for any reason other than adultery, in God's eyes, he's still married to her. So when he marries another woman, that's why he's committing adultery. Because in God's eyes, he's still married to his first wife. Likewise, when a woman is divorced from her husband for any reason other than adultery, she's still considered married to him. And so if another man marries this divorced woman, then he is committing adultery. So the biblical principle, summarized from not only here, but all of Jesus' teaching and the New and the Old Testament, is that sexual activity between, well, let's just put it this way. Sexual activity is only permitted between a man and a woman who are legally married. Every other type of sexual activity is sin. Those are the boundaries for sexual activity between a man and a woman who are married. When a couple loves God and not money, that's going to be one major, well, that will keep them together uh, till death do them part. What's the most common reason for divorce today? Irreconcilable differences, right? I mean a zillion things. That is not biblical grounds for divorce. The Bible says that God hates divorce, and so should we. Of course, there are innocent parties in divorces oftentimes that can't do anything about it. As with other sins, God forgives those who repent, who sincerely repent of their sin. But we must love God and not money. And it will help in our relationships as well and so today we've been talking about God's plan for the money that he's entrusted to us the take-home principle is that we are managers of God's resources in fact we can't go into it but we're managers of everything that God has given to us we are managers of the time that God has given to us to live our time is not our own it's God's we are managers of the talents and abilities that God has given to us. 
to use for him. But today we've been mainly talking about the finances that God has given to us. We are managers of it for him. And God's word teaches that the first 10%, the tithe of all of our income, is to be given to him through the church. And he promises to bless those who faithfully do that and meet every need in their lives. Pour out blessings from heaven, God says. The remaining 90% of the money that God has entrusted to us is not ours to do with what as we please. That's to be used for him as well in many, many different ways. And that's going to be different for each and every one of us because God's plan for each of our lives is different. We are to use the money that God has entrusted to us to win the lost, to expand God's kingdom, to serve God in every aspect of our lives, to lay up treasure in heaven and not simply try to accumulate treasure on this earth. We are to love God and seek his kingdom first. And when we do that, he promises to bless us in every aspect of our lives and meet every one of our needs. To become a believer, to become a follower of Jesus Christ, there's three steps. First of all, we need to repent of our sin, the things that we've been doing contrary to God's word. Secondly, we need to believe in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Believe that he died on the cross, that our sins might be forgiven. He rose from the dead. He's alive today. And finally, we submit our lives to his Lordship. We learn the things he's telling us to do from his word, and we obey. We don't do what we want to do. We do what he calls us to do. So we're going to pray right now. If you've never prayed a prayer like this before, if you're here in person or watching online, I'd encourage you to pray with us. If you'd like to recommit your life to God this morning, if he's been speaking to you in some area of your life, this would be a good time simply to repent, turn away from some aspect of your life that you have not submitted to him before. Let's pray. Father, today we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus who came that we might have eternal life. And so today I repent. I turn away from my sin. I turn away from the things that I have done in the past that have not been pleasing for you, to you, that have not been part of your plan for my life. I believe that Jesus died on the cross that my sins might be forgiven and I ask for you to forgive me. I believe you rose from the dead. You're alive today and I submit my life to you as my Savior and Lord. I want to follow your plan for my life today. Father, today we thank you for your word, for your clear teaching on one of the most important topics in our lives, how we handle the money that you have entrusted to us. Help us to have a change in our mindset about whose the money in the bank account is for. Help us to realize that everything that you've entrusted to us is to be used for the things that you desire. 
Help us to be able to hear clearly from you what you want us to do in life. Particularly that we're talking about today about the money that you've entrusted to us. Help us to be good managers, honest managers. They don't waste the things you've entrusted to us. That make good use of it. Because you've given it to us for a purpose. Help us to use the resources you've entrusted to us to serve you. Help us to love you and not money. Help us to gain our security in you and not in our bank account. Help us not to worry even though the stock market may crash and who knows what will happen, God. Help us to put our trust in you and you've promised that you will take care of us as we put you first. If we have a little, help us to be faithful in the little that we have so that you can entrust more to us. Help us to believe your word. Put you to the test. Because we want to see the windows of heaven opened and blessings come into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.